1: My history can beat up your politics wherever you get podcasts. Hey, everyone, welcome to episode eighty eight of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Last week, we set the stage for the Battle of Mill Springs, which was an early engagement in the struggle to control the border state of Kentucky. As y'all will recall, by the end of last week's episode, Confederate Brigadier General Felix Zollicoffer had advanced from Tennessee through the Cumberland Gap and into southern Kentucky, where he set up a winter camp. Zollicoffer decided to site the camp at Beech Grove on the north side of the Cumberland River, and it was there that he was joined by his worried superior officer, Major General George B. Crittenden.
1: Crittenden was worried because he realized that Zollicoffer's force was in a dangerous position with its back to the Cumberland. Brigadier General George H. Thomas's federal troops had just arrived at Logan's Crossroads about ten miles north of the rebel camp and there Thomas awaited the arrival of reinforcements under Brigadier General Albin Shep from nearby Somerset. Crittenden wanted to seize the initiative and attack the Yankees before Thomas and Shep could unite, while the Federals were still divided by the high waters of Fishing Creek. But unknown to Crittenden, Shep had already managed to get three regiments of infantry and some artillery across the flooded stream to reinforce Thomas at Logan's crossroads, bringing the federal numbers there up to about 4,400 men.
0: The 5,000 or so Confederate soldiers started to march out of Beach Grove at midnight on January eighteenth, eighteen 1862. One of the rebel officers later recalled that, quote, The night was dark and gloomy. A cold rain was constantly descending, rendering the march extremely difficult and unpleasant, end quote. The road was in a terrible condition, with the mud a foot deep in some places, and it took the Confederates six hours to march less than ten miles and approach Logan's crossroads. A soldier in the 19th Tennessee said, quote, The night was dark and cold, and the bitter winds drove the sleet and rain in our faces, yet on we went, plodding in the gloom and mud, end quote.
1: Zal-Koffer personally led a brigade, and he took the lead on a miserable march north. The other Confederate brigade, under the command of Brigadier General William Carroll, left camp 30 minutes after Zollicoffer. With Zollicoffer were the 15th Mississippi, 19th Tennessee, 20th Tennessee, and 25th Tennessee.
0: The Mississippians were the only Rebel regiment armed with rifled muskets, the other Confederate units being armed with old smoothbore flintlocks.
1: Right. Anyway, then Carroll's Brigade consisted of the 17th Tennessee, 28th Tennessee, and 29th Tennessee. Bringing up the rear as a reserve was the 16th Alabama. And then besides some cavalry, Six Cannon also accompanied the Confederate attack force. Because of the weather, the condition of the road, and the troops inexperience, Crittenden's plan was simple. The Confederates would march north up the Mill Springs Road, toward Logan's Crossroads, and when they met with the Yankees, the lead regiments would deploy on either side of the road and attack.
0: At daylight on Sunday, January 19th, the rebel cavalry leading Zollicoffer's brigade ran into the pickets of the 1st Kentucky Cavalry, about three miles south of Logan's Crossroads. As the Confederate horsemen appeared out of the mist and a smattering of small arms fire broke the early morning quiet, the Kentuckians slowly fell back northward toward two companies of the 10th Indiana, which were posted about a mile up the road. The firing grew heavier as the lead rebel regiment, the 15th Mississippi, slowly advanced northward up the Mill Springs Road, skirmishing with the stubborn Yankee pickets. Amidst the rough forested terrain, with visibility obscured by the fog, both sides often simply fired at muzzle flashes in the distance.
1: Zollicoffer faced only pickets, but his advance up the road was slow and tentative, since as he peered through the fog, the near-sighted Confederate officer was uncertain just how many Yankees he faced. But finally, as the firing picked up in intensity, he deployed his brigade from column into line. Because of the difficult terrain, there was little room to maneuver away from the road, but Zollicoffer managed to form his brigade into two lines— In the first line, he placed the 19th Tennessee on the left, or west side of the road, and the 15th Mississippi on the right side of the road. And then in the second line, the 25th Tennessee moved up behind the 19th Tennessee, while the 20th Tennessee moved up behind the Mississippians. Upon forming up on the rebel left flank, a soldier in the 19th Tennessee noted that, quote, The balls began passing over our heads pretty fast, with a zip-zip, and they did not seem to be doing any harm, for they were 200 yards away on the hill above us, End quote.
0: Thomas's Federals were encamped in an area spread around Logan's Crossroads, with the 10th Indiana, which had two companies out to support the cavalry pickets, positioned near the Crossroads. When the firing started out on the picket line, and the messenger arrived with the news that the enemy army was attacking up the Mill Springs Road, drummers begin to sound the long roll in the Hoosiers' camp.
1: I think we've mentioned the long roll before, but I'm not sure we've actually ever said what it was. So the long roll was a long, continuous roll. The drummer boys would beat on their drums, and it was the emergency signal for an immediate assembly. The soldiers were to immediately fall in with their arms. When a Civil War soldier heard the long roll begin to sound, he knew that action was imminent.
0: Exactly. So when the long roll began to sound in the camp of the 10th Indiana, the men, some of whom had been cooking their breakfast in the cold rain, grabbed their infield rifles and equipment and fell into ranks. And then their commander, Lieutenant Colonel William C. Kyes, marched them down the road at the double quick toward the sound of the rattling musketry.
1: The 10th Indiana quickly marched south and formed into line near the intersection of the Mill Springs Road and a farm road, where the pickets were already hotly engaged with the Confederates. Zollicoffer's tentative advance up the road had given the Hoosiers time to rush forward and support the picket line and stall the rebel drive. One northern soldier wrote that, quote, The continual zip-zip of the bullets soon settled the fact that the 10th was engaged in battle, end quote. The 10th Indiana faced the two leading Confederate regiments, the 15th Mississippi on the east side of the road and the 19th Tennessee on the west side of the road, so the Yankee soldiers were relieved when reinforcements arrived, even though those reinforcements were just 250 troopers of the 1st Kentucky Cavalry. Dismounting, the cavalrymen formed up on the Hoosiers' left. One trooper said, quote, here our cavalry and the indians stood shoulder to shoulder and fought the entire rebel force for about an hour."
0: Despite the fact that they were heavily outnumbered, the 10th Indiana and the troopers of the 1st Kentucky cavalry held up the rebel advance for so long because the federals had a good defensible position while the confederates had to maneuver over rough wooded terrain. In the poor visibility, the inexperienced southern soldiers were also unsure of just how many defenders they faced, and so they advanced cautiously. And the rebels made that cautious advance piecemeal, since once the action was joined, Zollicoffer failed to coordinate the movements of the different regiments in his brigade.
1: Nevertheless, Confederate numbers eventually began to tell, and the rebels slowly advanced, held at bay only by the intense fire of the Yankees' rifled muskets, which were more effective than the southern flintlocks, some of which would not fire in the rain. But then, as the Federals' position was being outflanked, Lieutenant Colonel Keiss tried to bend back the right side of his line to respond to the threat. But in the chaos of battle and the poor visibility, some members of the 10th Indiana believed a retreat had been ordered, and they started to fall back to the north, which caused considerable confusion. But then, finally, after an hour of fighting, additional federal reinforcements arrived. In his book, The Battle of Mill Springs, Kentucky, Stuart Sanders explains that, quote, after the battle, controversy erupted over claims that the 10th Indiana had fought alone for nearly an hour. Some officers and other regiments denied the Hoosiers' role during the opening phases of the battle, but evidence indicates that they fought with part of the 1st Kentucky Cavalry for that amount of time. After the war, Keiss indignantly noted that Thomas's official report did not highlight the regiment's role against the rebel vanguard. This report, Keiss claimed, ignored the first hour of the fight because Thomas disliked Manson, the Hoosier's brigade commander. In addition, Thomas probably failed to note the first hour because it reflected poorly on officers who did not deploy reinforcements in a timely manner. This included Thomas, who did not arrive on the field until at least an hour had passed. Quote.
0: After the battle had raged for nearly an hour, the 4th Kentucky Infantry was the first federal unit to arrive to support the hard-pressed 10th Indiana and the dismounted troopers of the 1st Kentucky Cavalry. The 4th Kentucky was led by Colonel Speed Fry. Fry was a Mexican war veteran, having raised a company of Kentucky volunteers which saw action at Buena Vista. After mustering out in 1847, Fry resumed his business affairs and was also active in politics. By the time Fry's 4th Kentucky arrived on the battlefield south of Logan's Crossroads, Portions of the 10th Indiana were running dangerously low on ammunition, and so some of the Hoosiers withdrew toward their camp, while perhaps one-third stayed on to fight with the Kentuckians. As Fry's men positioned themselves along a split-rail fence and took up the fight, the 19th Tennessee, west of the road, continued firing on the Federals, while the 15th Mississippi moved into a ravine east of the Union position, planning to use the wooded hollow to outflank the Yankees the 20th Tennessee commanded by Colonel Joel Battle followed the Mississippians.
1: To strike the Federal defensive position a decisive blow, the Confederate regiments needed to coordinate their assaults, but Zollicoffer placed himself with the 19th Tennessee and failed to seize the initiative or to exercise overall command of his brigade. And then as the individual rebel regiments maneuvered through the fog and the woods and heavy underbrush and down into ravines, They found it impossible to keep their lines intact, and unit cohesion broke down. In fact, the Federals were surprised that the Confederates didn't seem to be able to organize their assaults. One Yankee soldier noted the rebels, quote, were not in fair battle order, but swarmed in the woods like Indians, whooping like savages, end quote.
0: Mill Springs was mostly an infantry fight, since the rough terrain and poor visibility hindered the deployment of artillery. Some Federal cannon fired, even though they couldn't see any targets, since it was believed the sound of the big guns firing would boost the morale of friendly troops. At any rate, neither side's artillery played a significant role in the battle.
1: With Mill Springs being an infantry fight, many of the Confederate soldiers found themselves at a distinct disadvantage when the rain rendered their old flintlock muskets worthless. One soldier of the 20th Tennessee recalled, quote, Mine went off once in the action, and although I wiped the pan and primed a dozen times, it would do so no more. End quote. Multiple sources testify that the rain made many of the rebels' flintlocks ineffective, but exact numbers are difficult to pin down. Some estimates contend that one in five of the muskets wouldn't shoot, while others say it was one-third or even one-half. The regiments most affected seem to have been the 17th, 19th, and 20th Tennessee, and some of those soldiers were allowed to go to the rear. Crittenden later explained, It rained violently throughout the action, rendering all the flintlock guns useless. The men bearing them were allowed to fall back on the reserve. For the southern soldiers whose lives were put in danger by the inferior weapons, frustration was evident. One Tennessean concluded that if the weather had, quote, been fair, or had we been armed with percussion-cap guns, the result of that battle would have been far different. It rained nearly all the time, and our flintlocks would not fire. Our men lost much time in drawing loads from their guns, the powder having gotten wet in the rain, end quote.
0: By the time the battle had raged for approximately three hours, on the Confederate right flank, the 15th Mississippi and the 20th Tennessee were vainly trying to advance out of the ravine to dislodge the 4th Kentucky Infantry and the 1st Kentucky Cavalry, while on the rebel left, Zollicoffer led the 19th Tennessee against the stubborn remnant of the 10th Indiana. Rain came down and smoke clung to the ground, refusing to disperse. Sometimes units simply fired at one another through the murk, aiming not at enemy soldiers, but at the flash of muskets. During a pause in the action, Zollicoffer realized he had lost track of the 15th Mississippi and the 20th Tennessee, so along with a few aides, he rode over to the east side of the road to ascertain their whereabouts. Through the dense mist of the rainy morning, the nearsighted Zollicoffer spotted a unit he believed to be the 15th Mississippi— and he was concerned the Mississippians had not only advanced too far and exposed their flank, but that they were also firing on another rebel regiment. In reality, the unit Zollicoffer saw was not the Confederate 15th Mississippi, but the federal 4th Kentucky.
1: Zollicoffer rode right up to Speed Fry, the commander of the 4th Kentucky, and thinking the Yankee was a Confederate officer, admonished him, quote, We must not shoot our own men. End quote, and then pointed off to his left toward the rebel lines. After Fry responded that he would never shoot at friendly troops intentionally, both men perhaps realized they were confronting an enemy officer, and Zollicoffer started to ride away. But just then, one of his aides dashed out from behind a tree and fired his pistol at Fry, yelling to Zollicoffer, It's the enemy, General! As the aide ducked back behind the tree, Fry shot at Zollicoffer with his pistol, and several nearby Federal soldiers also used their rifles to fire at the unlucky Southerner. It appears Zollicoffer was hit by one of Fry's pistol shots, and also by two Enfield rounds. Although Fry was generally credited with killing Zollicoffer, it's more likely the fatal shot was fired from one of the rifles. After Zollicoffer was killed, the disheartened 19th Tennessee on the west side of the Mill Springs Road fell back, but the Confederates fighting in the ravine on the rebel right flank continued to assail the federal line.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
3: Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
0: After Zollicoffer was killed, Crittenden placed Colonel David Cummings of the 19th Tennessee in charge of the slain officer's brigade and ordered Carroll's brigade to come up and join the assault on the Federals. Carroll's brigade had trailed Zollicoffer's brigade during the Confederates' march north from Beach Grove, and while a mile had initially separated the two formations, that distance had grown because of the poor condition of the road and as artillery pieces became stuck in the mud. At any rate, Carroll's brigade didn't take part in the fighting until after Zollicoffer had been killed.
1: As Carroll's brigade finally moved into the fight, Cummings ordered the 25th Tennessee to continue the assault on the Union right flank. While across the road, the 15th Mississippi and 20th Tennessee advanced out of the ravine and pressed up against the fence defended by the 4th Kentucky. The fighting along the fence was savage. One Kentuckian recalled that, quote, The combatants were so near to each other at one time that the powder burned their faces and the discharge of their pieces, but the underbrush was so thick that bayonets were of but little use, and a charge could hardly have been contemplated.
0: George Thomas, for whatever reason, was delayed in reaching the battlefield. But once he arrived, he took charge of the fight. Along with Thomas, much-needed federal reinforcements also finally arrived. With both flanks pressed by rebel attacks, Thomas sent his reinforcements in everywhere. To support his right flank, Thomas sent in his best regiment, the Ninth Ohio. To give relief to the exhausted 4th Kentucky, 1st Kentucky Cavalry, and the few companies of the 10th Indiana along the fence, Thomas deployed the 2nd Minnesota. The Minnesotans arrived just in time as the 15th Mississippi was once again charging out of the ravine and the 4th Kentucky was falling back. Once again, fighting along the fence was fierce. An officer in the 15th Mississippi later said, quote, Our boys rose with a yell and charged them. Going in front of the company I was leading at the time, I soon got to the fence, and there from 10 to 20 yards was the enemy line falling back.
1: That was the 4th Kentucky falling back.
0: Right. The rebel officer continued, Our entire line, putting their guns to the cracks of the fence, fired into them with ball and buckshot, and the scene that followed defied description. The screams and groans, officers cursing and begging, trying to rally their men. Lieutenant Freeman of Company B jumped up on the fence and called for Company B to follow, but just that time another fresh regiment arrived.
1: That was the second Minnesota arriving just in the nick of time. As Tracy said, the fence line was once again the scene of fierce fighting. One Minnesotan wrote, our regiment charged up to the rail fence, and here occurred a hand-to-hand conflict, the rebels putting their guns through the fence from one side and our boys from the other. Quote. The fighting was so desperate that in the 2nd Minnesota, Company H's drummer boy picked up a musket from a fallen soldier and fought in the line. Finally, after 30 minutes of brutal close-quarters combat, the exhausted Confederates fell back into the ravine, leaving the fence to the Minnesotans.
0: The best Union regiment Thomas had on the field at Mill Springs was the Ninth Ohio. It was composed of German immigrants who had settled in Cincinnati, and many of the men had seen active military service in Europe, and they continued to drill as civilians in America. During the Civil War, the 9th Ohio was the 1st Buckeye Regiment to enlist for three years, and the men had already taken part in fighting in western Virginia at Rich Mountain and at Carnifex Ferry. The regiment's original commander, Colonel Robert McCook, had been promoted to Brigade Command, so at Mill Springs, the 9th was commanded by Major Gustav Kamerling.
1: When the 9th Ohio reached the battlefield at Mill Springs, Thomas sent it to the west side of the road, where the remnant of the 10th Indiana had been fighting. The Buckeyes faced the 17th and 19th Tennessee, while the 25th and 29th Tennessee tried to outflank the 2nd Minnesota. Meanwhile, the rest of the 10th Indiana, which had withdrawn after running low on ammunition, rejoined the fight. With that, Thomas's line consisted of the 2nd Minnesota on the left, the Hoosiers in the center, and the 9th Ohio on the right. Thomas also ordered the reinforcements he'd received from Shepth, the 12th Kentucky and the 1st and 2nd East Tennessee, led by Colonel Samuel P. Carter. Thomas ordered them to the extreme left of the Union line.
0: On the Union right, with the fight at a standstill, McCook saw that the only way to stop the rebels once and for all was to use brute force, so he decided to use his old regiment, the 9th Ohio, to drive the enemy from the field. Camerling ordered the regiment to fix bayonets and then ordered the charge and with that the disciplined buckeyes surged toward the confederates a member of the 2nd minnesota watching the germans go forward admitted that quote the dutchmen are rough-looking fellows on a charge end quote
1: the confederates must have thought so too because the 9th ohio's charge broke the rebel left and then the entire confederate line crumbled inward with both flanks collapsing toward the Mill Springs Road as the Federal regiments advanced and shoved the Confederates back.
0: While the 9th Ohio's bayonet charge was the most dramatic part of the breaking of the Rebel line, the 10th Indiana, 2nd Minnesota, and Colonel Carter's Kentucky and Tennessee troops all took part in the Yankee onslaught and pushed the overwhelmed Confederates southward. When that final decisive Union advance began, the Rebel soldiers were already exhausted, after marching all night and then going straight into the fight. And during the battle itself, many of them were frustrated to no end over their next to useless flintlocks. And so when that final Union advance rolled forward, the Confederates couldn't withstand it. One Federal soldier called McCook's charge, quote, As gallant a charge as was ever witnessed, the enemy could not stand it, but broke and fled in great confusion,
1: After the battle, a Hoosier wrote to his grandfather, admitting it, it had been a very hard fight, saying that at the end, the Confederates, quote, begun to run like turkeys, end quote, which is certainly a vivid word picture. But even the southern commander admitted the retreat from the battlefield was chaotic, Crittenden reported that quote, regiments became confused and broken, and great disorder prevailed. End quote. As the defeated rebels fled the battlefield, they were forced to leave behind many of their wounded. When the pell mell retreat back to Beach Grove began, W. J. Worsham of the 19th Tennessee carried his wounded comrade Charlie Clemenson to the Confederates' makeshift field hospital. Worsham later said. Quote, Poor Charlie was dying when we laid him down. We can never forget the sad, anxious expression of his face as we left him, dying alone, deserted by all whom he thought were friends, left on the cold ground, with naught but the cold rain to wash the sweat of death from his brow." End quote.
0: The battle had lasted about four hours, from 6.30 a.m. to nearly 11 o'clock. And then, after the triumphant Union soldiers had refilled their cartridge boxes, that rarest of all Civil War operations began, the pursuit of a defeated foe from the battlefield. The Federals advanced southward in line of battle, which one Union soldier noted was, quote, safe but slow, end quote. Many of the Federals later wrote about the signs of panic that marked the Confederates' line of retreat. A Yankee artilleryman said, quote, the ground was literally covered all the way to their camp with muskets, sabers, blankets, knapsacks, haversacks, canteens, cartridges, horses, and everything that they could throw away to facilitate their escape, end quote. An officer in the 10th Kentucky noted that, quote, language fails me to describe their total route. They threw away everything, guns, knapsacks, haversacks, and even their coats, end quote.
1: By the time the victorious Federal troops reached Beech Grove, they were, according to one officer, quote, powder besmeared, tired, and hungry. End quote. Finding the beaten Confederates were drawn up inside the incomplete, but still formidable-looking entrenchments that protected their encampment, Thomas placed the Union artillery on a nearby ridge, and from there, sixteen Yankee guns blasted away at the enemy works. The cannon fire ended at dark with Thomas planning on assaulting the rebel fortifications the next morning. But while the Federals bedded down as best they could, the Confederates were busy as bees, after Crittenden ordered his men to continue their retreat by crossing the Cumberland. Crittenden made the decision because he had no expectation that come morning, his battered, exhausted, and demoralized command could withstand the inevitable federal assault, so the rebels started to cross over to the south side of the river using two flatboats and a small, stern-wheeler steamboat up from Nashville, the Noble Ellis. Most of the supplies, baggage, horses, and mules had to be left behind, but within six hours, Crittenden's men had crossed the Cumberland to Mill Springs.
0: The Federals saw the boats going back and forth across the river, but they were unsure what all the activity meant speed fry wrote to his wife saying quote, we saw their little steamboat crossing back and forth all night but did not know whether they were falling back or bringing new regiments to this side end quote. but the confederates were indeed falling back one member of the nineteenth tennessee wrote quote, we are on the river bank in one compact mass of excited and confused humanity Thousands were crowded there waiting, each his turn to get on the Noble Ellis as she crossed and recrossed the river. What a racket and confusion reigned here, and right in the face of the enemy." End quote. As the Federal artillery lobbed shells at the Noble Ellis, some Confederate soldiers waiting on the river bank decided it was too dangerous to cross the river on the overcrowded little steamboat, so they tried to swim the Cumberland, and a number of them apparently drowned in the attempt.
1: With dawn on Monday morning, January 20th, the Federal soldiers moved forward, prepared to assault the Confederate fortifications at Beech Grove, but they found the enemy camp deserted. Realizing that the Union Army had missed an opportunity to perhaps capture the entire rebel force, Speed Fry asked George Thomas why he hadn't sent over a demand for the Confederates to surrender during the previous night. The Federal commanding officer replied, quote, hang it fry i never once thought of it End quote.
0: one confederate left a note for the federals it read quote, we fought you bravely and desperately but misguidedly we leave here under pressing circumstances but do not feel that we are whipped End quote. but despite such bravado the southerners situation was desperate and they were fortunate thomas did not press the federal pursuit across the cumberland Not only had the Confederates lost the battle, but they had few supplies for the retreat to Tennessee. By the time the remnants of Crittenden's broken little army reached Gainesboro, Tennessee, about 75 miles east of Nashville, on January 26th, there had been mass desertions as men slipped away during the grueling and demoralizing march through the barren countryside.
1: On January 20th, Thomas issued a congratulatory order from the, quote, camp opposite Mill Springs, end quote. and so the Mill Springs name caught on with the northern newspapers, and most historians have accepted that name for the battle. Even as George Thomas congratulated his victorious army, Union soldiers began collecting the wounded and burying the dead. There has apparently been some disagreement over the years regarding the losses each side suffered during the battle, but in one of the appendices at the back of his book on Mill Springs, Kenneth A. Hafendorfer provides a detailed list of the casualties he was able to put together from numerous sources during his research, and he came up with Confederate losses of 136 killed outright, 38 mortally wounded, 255 wounded, 80 captured, and 31 missing. And then his count shows Federal losses as 44 killed outright, 11 mortally wounded, 182 wounded, and one captured. The 10th Indiana suffered the most Union casualties, while it appears about three-fourths of the Rebel losses came from the 15th Mississippi and the 20th Tennessee.
0: The federal victory at Mill Springs is often cited as unhinging the right flank of Albert Sidney Johnston's long defensive line across southern Kentucky, but to the disappointment of Abraham Lincoln, George Thomas was unable to follow up the victory at Mill Springs with an immediate advance into East Tennessee. This was due to poor weather and logistical difficulties, and also in consideration of Buell's plan to move on Nashville. Nevertheless, Thomas was rewarded for his success at Mill Springs when he was promoted to Major General of Volunteers in April.
1: Crittenden didn't fare so well. With their hometown hero, Zollicoffer, slain on the field of battle, the newspapers of Knoxville and Nashville took the lead in looking for a scapegoat for the defeat at Mill Springs, and soon the southern press had judged Crittenden and found him guilty of being an incompetent drunkard who had been unable to command an army on the day of battle or during the subsequent retreat. In his book on Mill Springs, Hafendorfer asks, quote, But was Crittenden drunk on the 19th of January? Looking strictly at his performance that day on the field, there is no indication that he was. As William Preston Johnston would later write, Crittenden had the evidence of impartial witnesses who saw him on that day, and he was perfectly sober. All evidence then strongly indicates that Crittenden, while having been drinking on the night of the 18th, was not drunk during the battle. However, under the stress of that day's action and the rout of his army, all evidence does suggest that he began drinking again that night upon returning to Beech Grove. After issuing orders for the army to evacuate Beech Grove, Crittenden did little to prepare for and maintain an orderly crossing of the river by his army. In short, there was a lack of leadership during the night of the 19th and on the morning of the 20th. Taking everything into consideration, there is enough evidence to strongly imply that Crittenden had drank some on the night of the 18th, was sober during the battle, but then started to drink heavily on the night of the 19th and continued to do so on the 20th, end quote.
0: Crittenden asked for a court of inquiry to investigate his conduct, but by the end of February, no report had been made to the War Department in Richmond, and by that time, Crittenden and Carroll were both serving in Albert Sidney Johnston's army, which was preparing to fight the Battle of Shiloh. As the eve of that great battle approached, however, Crittenden and Carol were both found to be drunk while on duty, and on April 1st they were arrested. A subsequent court of inquiry recommended a court-martial for both officers. Crittenden sidestepped the humiliation of a court-martial by resigning from the army.
1: The Union victory at Mill Springs in January did deal a fatal blow to the right flank of Albert Sidney Johnston's lengthy defensive line that had been hastily stretched across southern Kentucky. Other federal successes quickly followed Mill Springs. In February, Grant captured Forts Henry and Donaldson. The Confederates then withdrew from Bowling Green and also retreated from Nashville. By the beginning of March, Polk was evacuating Columbus, And so by April, the Rebels had given up not only Kentucky, but also most of Tennessee to the Yankees. It was to try and reverse that string of defeats, which had started at Mill Springs, that Albert Sidney Johnston, on April 6th, launched an attack against the Federal force encamped in southern Tennessee at a place called Shiloh Landing. But talk of strategy, and of this city falling and that fort being captured, can make war seem pretty impersonal. So when we discuss a Civil War battle on the podcast, Tracy and I always try to show that when it came right down to it, the battles were defined, really, by the individual human experience of those involved in the fighting. That's why, when we can, we include a lot of first-person accounts from the soldiers themselves as they relate their experiences of what happened on the battlefield But sometimes we forget that it wasn't just the soldiers who were affected by the fighting. Also impacted were the civilians who lived near to where a battle took place. And so that's why we want to close by sharing this passage from Stuart Sanders' book on the Battle of Mill Springs. The three boys walked toward the battlefield, their picks and shovels slung over slender shoulders. One of them, barely ten years old, was pulled to the recent scene of fighting by his older brothers. As the trio neared the battleground, they passed the abandoned accoutrements of war. Muskets, bayonets, coats, and cartridge boxes lay scattered, thrown away by fleeing soldiers. The boys probably knew little about the fight that had happened near their home. As they watched wagons full of wounded soldiers rumble away, however, they might have spoken of the rebel general, Zollicoffer, who was shot down before his soldiers fled to the swollen Cumberland River. Youthful chatter ended when they reached the field. After the battle, nobody knew what to do, one later wrote. The bodies were all covered up with ice, and everyone was running around crying. Father hitched the mules up to a dirt scoop, and dug three long trenches to place the bodies in. The bodies were frozen to the ground, and we had to take shovels and pry them from the ground. We stacked the bodies in the wagon like firewood. Legs, hands, and arms were in odd positions, and some bodies did not have all their parts. The bodies were placed in the trenches and covered.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Mill Springs, Campaign and Battle of Mill Springs, Kentucky, by Kenneth A. Hafendorfer.
1: Hafendorfer's book, including endnotes, is over 600 pages long. Yes, over 600 pages on Mill Springs. So it has everything, and we mean everything, you'd ever want to know about the Campaign and Battle of Mill Springs including over 80 maps. So there you go. You can find Hafendorfer's detailed and lengthy tome and all of our book recommendations by visiting the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
0: Don't forget to check out the podcast Facebook site. During the week, between episodes, we try to post some things y'all might find interesting. And we're getting perilously close to 700 likes on Facebook. So don't forget to like the podcast while you're there. And if you're number 700, we'll give you a shout out here on the podcast.
1: Yeah, we appreciate each of those likes. And if you have trouble finding the podcast on Facebook, don't forget that on the website, there's a link that'll take you right to the Facebook page. And so with that, we're going to wrap things up for this show. So thanks for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, we'll stay west of the Appalachians and we'll start in on Ulysses S. Grant's campaign against Forts Henry and Donaldson. So we hope you'll join us for that. But until then, take care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.